Turn your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. Revelation 3, verse 7. We're in a series on strength for today, hope for tomorrow. Tonight at 6.30, join us. Uh, We'll have uh, Emily to share about her work uh, with us tonight. So it'll be a a good evening together uh, as the body of Christ at 6.30 this evening. But this morning, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And this is the word of God. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Then join me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's let's pray together. Father, we're glad that we do have your word this morning. We're glad we have the sacrament as well today. Uh, Father, we pray for your spirit's help as we uh, come to your word and to the table that, Father, you, your spirit might work to give us a greater understanding of all the good things we have in Christ uh, and what you've called us to do with the open door before us. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Nestled in a fertile valley some uh, 30 miles southeast of Sardis and 60 miles east of Smyrna uh, is the city of Philadelphia, I meaning, of course, brotherly love. It was founded in 189 B.C. by uh, Italus Philadelphus II. And he gave the city his family's name uh, out of respect and affection for his older brother. So what does Jesus have to say to the First Presbyterian Church of Philadelphia? Let's go to the text and see. Start with the opportunity as we look at the city itself. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right. Philadelphia prospered quickly because of its location on an east-west highway uh, and the rich farmland that surrounded the city due to volcanic ash. It was called Little Athens because its founders wanted to be just that, uh, an Athens. Uh, They were known for their uh, love of Greek art, Greek literature, the theater, the music. The god that was everywhere was Dionysius or Bacchus, the god of wine. Bacchus' divine mission was to play the flute and uh, drive away all sorrow and cares. So that was Philadelphia, constantly curring the favor of the emperor. Uh, when Caesar Tiberius gave the city funds after the earthquake in 17 AD uh, that heavily damaged it, they for a few years greatly changed the name of the city to New Caesar, that is uh, Neo-Caesarea. Then some years later, Uh, They temporarily changed the name to Flavia after another Roman emperor to try to get his favor. So the city itself had a goal. They wanted to be a foundation, a gateway city into the interior mountains of Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey. To be the city of the open door. That is a launching pad to spread Greek culture, Greek language, uh, and uh, uh, Greek uh, philosophy across the area. And it was that city that opened door mindset that really had an impact on the church there as well and their approach to things. 
which makes us want to look at what Jesus says and the characteristics he gives to himself here. He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open, says this. Or Jesus describes himself as the Holy One. That's not from chapter 1. We see that name given to him over again in chapter 6. But the more significant point here is that this title is repeatedly used of God himself throughout the Old Testament. Some 59 times in the ESV, uh, you'll find the Holy One. And most of those would be in the book of Isaiah. And this letter to Philadelphia alludes to Isaiah in almost every verse, almost every line. So he's using the word holy, which becomes a dominant word in the rest of Revelation, uh, to describe himself and what's coming. Uh, Jesus also calls himself the true one here. He's the true Messiah, and no one else is. When the, when the, when the Roman emperor is constantly changing, when there are so many other gods out there that they worship, there's only one true one, and that's Jesus. So what's it mean to say that he has the key of David? Remember in chapter 1, we're told Jesus has a key, but it's the key to to death and Hades. It's the key to to judgment and salvation there. But now Jesus is pointing to something else. And his reference is a story from the Old Testament about two men, Shebna and Eliakim, both officials under King Hezekiah. You read about them in 2 Kings 18, and then again over in Isaiah 22. Uh, Shebna was something like the chief of staff for the king. Uh, Eliakim was more like his personal assistant as the story begins. But don't get hung up on their, their, their job descriptions. Uh, it's not so important. But what Shebna does is, uh, Shebna takes advantage of his position. And he gets the finest chariot around, the latest model. I think it was uh, electric driven. Uh, and uh, uh, he used those government funds for that. And then he decided he needed to prepare a very nice tomb to be buried in. So once again, he appropriated government funds to have the nicest tomb around once he died. I don't know where he wanted that, but he did. Um, So Isaiah comes along, sent by God, and he comes to Shebna and has some bad news for him. He's going to die. In fact, he's going to die a violent death because of what he's doing. And Eliakim will get his position. Now you say, okay, why is that important? Well, it's because of what we're told about Eliakim at this point. Uh, what we see is here, he's a, he's a type of Christ. He gives us a picture of what it was like when Christ uh, was placed on the throne in Psalm 2 as uh, God's definitive king there. Uh, now, why do we say that? Well, Isaiah 22 tells us that uh, Eliakim has the key of the house of David placed on his shoulder. It also tells us that he's going to be a father to the nation of Israel. And furthermore, he's going to be a tent peg in the temple itself, uh, the tent peg on which everything can hang and depend, and which represents, it tells us there in Isaiah 22, the throne of God. Now think back to what you know from Isaiah chapter 9, where we're, we're predicted the Messiah. We're told that the government beware on the Messiah. On his shoulder, right? Uh, and we're told to be called the everlasting father. And we're told that he'll inherit the throne of his father David. 
in other words, all the things that we're told about as Isaiah are now told to us about Eliakim. And so in his role as chief of staff, Eliakim literally opens and closed doors as to who has access to come before the king, who can come into the king's presence. And so it is that Jesus has the sole authority to determine who can come into his kingdom. He opens and he shuts the door. So given what we know about the city of Philadelphia itself as a, as a door to spread Greek culture, given Paul's various comments that we see in the New Testament in First and Second Corinthians, in Colossians, in the book of Acts, referring to the open door of ministry, it seems likely this is the door that, that John's describing here that Jesus is giving us, uh, a door that opens to ministry. And so that the Philadelphia church has an open door to ministry to spread the gospel for people to enter into the kingdom, even as the city considers itself to have an open door to spread Greek culture. This morning we've talked about doors to ministry already. Uh, the, the ministry in our community that began uh, officially in 1985, Eagle Ranch. Uh, we're reminded also with, with, with a baptism today, as, as last week, um, that this church has reached this community over the years as we received new members. Uh, an open door has existed since 1874. That's because of that open door that we enlist people to help with vacation Bible school uh, next month. Uh, because of the opportunity God gives us to reach out within the walls and outside of the walls. God gives local churches like ours and our Baptist brothers and sisters across the street an open door to ministry that's quite frankly unique to each church. He gives us global opportunities with open doors uh, around the world. We do not want to be Shebna's who get self-focused and think it's all about us, self-absorbed. We want to be Eliakim's, whom God uses for his glory. So what's Jesus' analysis of the church here? Verse 8, I know your deeds. Behold, I put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan... So that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. All right, Jesus knows their, uh, their, their deeds, their works. Uh, he knows that they've used their ministry doors. In fact, the church in Philadelphia was so faithful that there were still five churches there despite the Muslim context when the 20th century began. Uh, and so uh, Jesus says, I've put an open door before you. And it reminds us then that the ministry that we carry out is actually the ministry of Jesus that he carries out through us by the power of his Holy Spirit. Uh, hence, though, the, the Philadelphia church itself has little power, evidently meaning perhaps there, there are few in number, and or simply made up of people without much uh, influence, without much social standing. Keeping God's word means they've lived out the gospel. Uh, that is, they know what God's word says. They believe it. They obey its teachings. 
They've not denied Jesus' name, which means they've probably faced some local persecution. Instead, they've made much of the name of Jesus. We'll read over in Revelation 14, 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Philadelphia is a small church with great power because of Christ that's kept the faith in word and deed. So what about this synagogue of Satan business? We've already seen that once in these letters, and that's Jesus' term for the Jews because of their opposition uh, to the gospel, to the church. Now, later on, rabbis will condemn the Jews in Philadelphia for compromising with the secular authorities there. And perhaps they've already been taking advantage of their cozy relationship with the government by, by having them turn on the Christians, turn on the church. Well, whatever the case, God's going to turn the table on the Jews. And they will, it says, bow down. Uh, meaning God's enemies then at that point will be defeated. Again, you go back to Isaiah, this time sixty fourteen. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. And all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. And they shall call you the city of the Lord, the city of the Holy One of Zion. Ironically, in Isaiah's context, uh, that's Gentiles coming and falling before the Jews. But here in the book of Revelation, the roles are reversed. And the, and the Jews come and bow before the Gentiles. In defeat, to be sure, but more than that, uh, it's also in repentance and faith. The word for bow here is the word used to show reverence and worship to God. And so unbelieving Israel takes on the role of Gentiles in coming to faith in Christ. And then notice it says that they, the Jews, will learn that I, Jesus, have loved you. I've loved the church. Um, Though the church has not experienced brotherly love from the Jews, Jesus has loved them. What we have there is a full display of the, uh, before us today of the, of the love that Christ has at this table. We who are unlovable, we who are rebellious sinners, we who are outcast, friends, we're loved by an everlasting God. Just as we sang them before the throne of God, we're loved all the way to the cross where Jesus sheds his blood for us, for our sins, so that we stand as, as faultless before him. And then he, he opens the door of opportunities for us, and he empowers us to proclaim that good news to this community and this world. So what about us? And we're the people that Jesus has given an open door for, here for for ministry in Chestnut Mountain and around the world. And when you look at the size of the world, we're quite frankly very little. We're not much. But we can be faithful. And to remind us of His love for us and all that He's done for us. To enable us to proclaim to the world His death for sinners until He comes again. 
Jesus invites us to this table to, to remember his death. He invites us to this table to strengthen us for the open doors that come before us. All who are believers in Jesus Christ and members in good standing of an evangelical church are invited to come to this table and eat. If you're not yet a believer, we're delighted you're here, but the Bible would urge you not to participate uh, in this meal. So there's some suggestions in the bulletin, um, and we'd love to share with you following the service how you can know Christ and know about His love. Likewise, children not yet met with the session should not partake. Uh, but if you're desiring to begin participating, we are having a class start in a couple of weeks, so please let me know. As believers, we're called to see if we recognize the body of Christ. Do we recognize what it is that Jesus did for us here? His suffering and death for us, for our sin. The price He paid to die for our sins. Now, given that, what's our attitude towards our sin? If there's some sin that, as we've said, we think is not a big deal, God doesn't care about, if there's some sin I just don't want to give up, uh, then I'm not recognizing that Christ's death is for me. I'm not realizing the seriousness of my sin and should not partake. But if we need help in the battle against sin, if we need strength, if we need help to truly love others in the body of Christ, then by all means we take. Likewise, it's a source of strength for us to minister through the open doors before us. Again, to proclaim Christ's death until He comes. We dare not try to minister in our own strength, but only in that which Jesus provides. So now let's each take a moment, examine our own hearts before God, confess our sin. Father, your word reminds us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that you cast our sins into the depth of the sea and remember them no more, that you remove them from us as far as the east is from the west. So, Father, we claim that hope this morning, thankful that as we turn from our sin, you forgive us. And you take that sin away from us. And see us, Father, uh, as you see the spotless Lamb of God. And we thank you for that hope in Jesus' name. Amen.